You could spend the weekend doing the same old whatever, or you could conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. We have now done... 280, well, this will be 281 episodes of the show before the show podcast. And uh, I would like to be a person who does things, you know, a little bit differently, mixes stuff up, doesn't just introduce every episode with, hey, folks, how you doing? Um, with my Jay Leno impression. So this week, I wanted to tell you a point of excitement for, for me while recording this podcast, Sam. That's that's exciting. I feel like you're breaking news to me. Like we haven't discussed this beforehand. So it's nothing cool or that oh, exciting. Okay. But uh, so I, uh, as as many listeners are probably aware, I, I bought a house a couple years ago, and I turned a, a closet in one of the the rooms that is like my office. I turned the closet into the podcast studio. So I like hung up some soundproofing material. My dad and I built like a little desk in here. Um, but the most exciting thing is that it's starting to get cold here in Denver, Colorado. And therefore, I don't think that at least for the next few months, I will risk passing out of heat stroke in this closet because it's been, it's been dicey at times over the summer. It gets a little warm. It's a little toasty. <laughs> so I'm breaking news from the closet today. Very very it's a decent temperature in here. The, the temperature in the recording studio, formerly a closet, is uh it's it's very bearable there are most times when like we're recording and we get done with a segment and i have to open the door or else i'm just going to be like dripping sweat onto my keyboard and uh i'm really i'm really happy that it's not that, that was always my favorite noise of the podcast i don't know a lot, if a lot of people got to hear it yeah it just reminded me so much of aim when your friends would sign on you just hear the door opening that was oh, yeah, Tyler wait, saying wait. like yeah here we can we can do it for everyone Oh, now it's not going to creak? <laughs> Come on. There we go. Sort of. There it is. Yeah. 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 Somebody just signed off AI. I forgot about that, that they used to do the – that was when someone would come in, and then when they signed off. This is now an AOL Instant Messenger podcast. We're not <laughs> talking baseball. This is also a uh, Foley work podcast. We're just going to start making noises in the background to signify. <laughs> You're like that dude from the Police Academy movies. A Denver native, by the way. Uh, I've never seen any of the Police Academy movies. But you've seen the clips on YouTube, at least. Right, but I'm aware of his work. Okay. I can't think of his name right now either. Oh, this is terrible. I apologize to all of you for wasting the first five minutes of this week's episode of the show before the show. But here we are from Minor League Baseball, the official podcast of Minor League Baseball on MILB.com. It is episode 281 of the show before the show. I am Tyler Mon in Denver, Colorado. Sam Dykstra is in New York City. Hi, Sam. Are you Hello, Tyler. now? Are you, do you feel smarter than you did five minutes ago? I just got to say, I, I enjoy setting the scene. That's what yeah. I like most about these. We're very descriptive. That's what we yeah. do here. We're, you know, two guys who like to paint the picture for you and, and make sure everybody understands the uh you know the, the essence of the thing in exactly. the recording of this show so that's what we're doing that's all that's um, all we're doing we're just setting scenes right you're welcome everyone uh so with that we're gonna get started we got a lot coming up for you on this week's episode of the show uh a lot to discuss with benjamin hill coming up in a little bit some business of minor league baseball uh items an update on what's going on with the lakewood franchise which will now be known as the jersey shore blue claws we got that conversation coming up here in a little bit uh joe bloss will join us for a terrific conversation about uh his story 
up on the site right now about Leo Muscle Shoals, a legendary slugger in minor league baseball history who played from the 1930s to the 1950s and, uh, and a lot more going on in the world of baseball. And that is where we will get our conversation underway this week as uh, game one of the World Series last night, the Los Angeles Dodgers with a victory over the Tampa Bay Rays to grab a one game to none series win uh, or series lead i should say uh longtime friend of milb.com blake snell gets the nod tonight uh for the tampa bay rays as uh, the dodgers with an eight to three victory last night blake snell will go up against tony gonsolin tonight uh as the rays try to even that series and the dodgers try to grab a 2-0 series lead really impressive win last night We've seen some really impressive performances throughout this postseason for rookies. Obviously, Randy Rosarena is the guy we've talked about nonstop, it feels like, over the, the last few weeks of the postseason. But uh, at least from a, a system and uh, young contributor standpoint, Sam, what has stood out to you? We're going to talk a, a little bit larger scheme about the state of these two organizations and where they are with their farm systems here in a minute. But what stood out to you about, uh, you know, obviously just one game of the World Series, but about how these teams got here relying in, in some substantial substantial part on some of their youth. Yeah. I mean, I, it, it's kind of crazy how game one signified, uh, you know, I'll just come out and say it, why I think the Dodgers are going to take the series. And that's very easy to say after they've won the first game and in such dominant fashion, but uh, the Rays offense, this postseason has really revolved around Randy Arizona. Um, I, I saw some stat where he had scored at, I think it was like 27% of the team's runs this postseason. Um, we've seen him show off tons of power. He, he seems like the only one getting on base. The rest of the offense has really struggled. And when Arizona has a game like he did last night, which felt like an off night compared to what everything else he's done during this playoff run, uh, the Rays were, were just okay. And uh, so that, that kind of speaks to how they've gotten here. They've, they have a hot hand. Uh, we know baseball, a hot hand can go away very quickly. We're going to need some contributions from the rest of that lineup to, to get to a place where the Rays, you know, could conceivably win this uh, series, but the Dodgers at times they've had their own issues uh, these playoffs, but they have easily the deeper lineup. Um, they might have the better starting pitching. I mean, being able to start Clayton Kershaw, I know he has all sorts of playoff problems that people love bringing up, but he still is arguably the best pitcher of this generation. Um, getting to use him in, in game one was really special. Uh, the Rays, in my opinion, got away from what got them there. Uh, Tyler Glass now was doing really well early on, but by the time he got to the, the going through that lineup for a third time, really struggled, and he struggled at times with his control in, in game one, but they kept him out there. It was the first time he had ever thrown more than 100 pitches in a postseason game. I think his pitch count last night was the, the highest for any Rays starting pitcher this year. What did the Rays do to get here? It felt like they were always sticking to a pitching plan. Um, if a starter was a true starter, like a glass now, like a Blake Snell, they would allow that guy to get through maybe two turns of the lineup. I, and I think Kevin Cash uncharacteristically got away from that last night. But going back to your original point, Tyler, um, about using youth, it really did surprise me it, just how much this offense is built around Randy Arizona, him and Shane McClanahan, 
Shane McClanahan, who earlier made his major league debut in the, these playoffs, are the only two ranked prospects left. The Dodgers are much more better in every lineup. A lot of these guys have been through a World Series before, um, and that includes Mookie Betts, who, who won one two years ago with the Boston Red Sox. Um, so that that's interesting to see how that dynamic is, is going to play out. How much does World Series experience matter in this situation? Both teams have been going at this postseason for a while now. It's the longest postseason we've ever had. Uh, but yeah, I think what we saw here in game one, and, and we'll still see what's going to happen here in game two. Lord knows the, the uh, script could flip here very shortly, but um, the Dodgers are just a deeper lineup. It's going to take the Rays getting back to their basics, really playing out matchups in that bullpen. Because unless Randy Arozarena is going to be superhuman again, or somebody else is going to take up that role, they're going to need to win games four, three, three, two, what have you. Uh, so we'll we'll see how things go. But as things look right now, here speaking on uh, Wednesday afternoon, it looks like the Dodgers have a pretty clear advantage. Now, here is the question for our purposes, and I'm going to pretend like I came up with it, even though you came up with it. <laughs> uh, these are two of, if not the two, best systems in minor league baseball. And there's a very good chance that this is the first time we see this matchup in the World Series, but not the last time. If you were to position a franchise for the next five years using what the Rays currently have or what the Dodgers currently have, who is it and why? Yeah, so uh, for our purposes – I mean, you would want to take the Rays, right? Like the Rays have a very strong group right now at the major league level. Uh, guys who are tied up for, for a little while longer. Um, no huge contracts on, on the books, but that's the way the Tampa Bay Rays are built. We know that they, this is a team that traded away Tommy Pham for crying out loud because his arbitration number was going to be too high. Um, but we've long talked about them having the number one system in baseball, and, and that is probably still true right now, even after some graduations this year. Um, Wander Franco almost broke the internet this week when he posted a, a jersey of like his major league jersey with the world series patch on it right he's part of like the player pool so he's in the bubble uh for these playoffs everybody who's in that bubble gets their own major league jersey their own world series jersey very cool moment for him and and great for him for showing it off and kind of taking us in like that but it wasn't indicative of him being added to the roster and as of now he hasn't been added to the roster it's going to take an injury for him to get on up there, but they still have Wander Franco, number one prospect in the game. Brendan McKay still technically a prospect. He had injury issues this year, but still hasn't graduated. Vidal Brujan, Xavier Edwards would be the two best infield prospects in many other systems here. They're the second and third best in, infield prospects because they have to play behind Franco. Uh, Shane Boz, I really like him uh, since they got him from the Pirates. He was the third guy in what was now an infamous trade. Uh, involving Chris Archer that brought the Rays, both Tyler Glassnow and Austin Meadows. We go on. It's not on been on. a fun postseason to be a Pirates fan. No, or season in not general. Bad. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> really. Or it, like, it never stopped. Or like several decades. Yeah, yeah. Um, but anyways, I, we could go further and further in this Tampa Bay Rays system. But it's the waves of talent are going to keep coming. They're not all located at one level. Um, some of these guys are, are at the lower levels. Some of these guys are at the upper levels. They drafted Nick Bitsko this year, which was one of my favorite draft picks. Um, he's very young as a pitcher. It's going to take him a, a while. And knowing what we know about the Rays system, they like to bring up their pitching prospects a little slower than some other systems do. So it's going to be a while until we see the 18-year-old in the majors. Uh, but it's as deep a system as you're going to find, and that's how the Rays continually have success. That being said, 
we can't just look at this through a farm system perspective. The Dodgers, as Tyler said, had a good system. They still really do. If you look at who their top prospects are now, Gavin Lux technically graduated this year, so we can't really count him. Uh, but Josiah Gray is their number one prospect right now. Kiebert Ruiz, number two, he got a little bit of major league time. Cody Hosey, I wrote about uh, in Toolshed a, a little while back. Uh, the Dodgers are very high on him and what his power potential could be. Gavin Lux came from the alternate site and said the guy was spraying doubles and, and hitting the ball all over the place and hitting for power. Um, they're excited for what he can do after he was a 2019 first round pick. So the Dodgers have a good enough system, but they also just have the resources. And uh, I'm always going to bet on a team that has the resources because one thing the Dodgers do really well is spreading that out to all aspects of their organization. They don't just spend on free agents, although they, they do that as well. Um, but, you know, they develop incredibly well and in getting these guys ready for the major leagues because they put in the time at the minor leagues. They don't just only focus on the majors. Um, but because of what they did with the Jeter Downs, in a very brief time they got him, they were able to trade for Mookie Betts. And then they were able to give Mookie Betts a 12-year extension. Having Mookie Betts in your system, sorry to say this to all Red Sox fans, you can turn away now, but it makes you a better team instantly. And the reason they were able to get him was because of the financial resources they have and being able to afford him for one year left on, on his deal, one year of arbitration, and then giving him that extension. But they also had the prospect capital to make such a deal happened. They had Alex Verdugo who came up through that system developed pretty well, but wasn't necessarily a starting outfielder uh, or isn't one to the caliber of bets, but they can supplement him with Connor Wong and Jeter Downs and make a deal happen. The Dodgers could keep doing this conceivably um, before the bets deal. And still probably they could pull this off now if they really wanted to, they could go out and get a Francisco Lindor. They're not going to because Corey Seager has been really, really good at shortstop right now, but they could continually find just these these players who are at the very end of their rookie contracts uh, and trade the prospects that they have developed into really good prospects and turn them into bona fide major leaguers. They can do it any which way. Josiah Gray could be a very good starting pitcher for them someday along the lines of Tony Gonsolin and Dustin May, uh, what they've been able to do in the majors, getting meaningful innings in these playoffs with differing results, but still enough to the, the point where they are trusted enough to, to pitch in the playoffs. Josiah Gray's that next name, or they could trade him for somebody else. And that fills a bigger hole. Um, so the Dodgers have a lot of money. They seem to willing to spend that money. Uh, and they are the team that I would bet on for the next five years. Cause it's just, there's no clear spot where it's like, okay, this is where things are going to dip. Cause yeah, maybe Clayton Kershaw becomes a four or five starter by the end of that five-year window but maybe Walker Buehler becomes a real true ace and the best pitcher in the national league for years two and three. Uh, and maybe Gonsolin becomes a number three, maybe becomes a number two, whatever down the line. Uh, they just have the resources to fill holes. They have the players in their pipeline to do that as well. And even if right now, if we're just sitting here with Gray and Ruiz as their two top 100 prospects, I can bet you by the time we have a full minor league season again, the Dodgers, the way they develop and allow these guys to turn their strengths into plus tools, they would end again with four or five top 100 prospects. And we'd wonder why it happens just because of what they do as a pipeline. But that's just my take. Tyler, who would you have? Yeah. I mean, I would certainly say the Dodgers too. I think what the, what the Dodgers have become, we waded through the first 20 years of, of this century with several different 
philosophies as to how organizations have to be built. And you had the, you know, the early 2000s Yankees or Red Sox, where it was largely let's go out and acquire major league talent, pay a lot of money, have a bloated payroll and see where that gets us. And then on the flip side of that, you had the A's and you had the Rays and you had teams that built from within, you know, we knocked the pirates a little while ago. Pirates had that run where they made uh, a few postseason appearances and uh, largely did it on a homegrown core with guys like Garrett Cole or Tyler glass. Now who were um, so highly touted coming up in that system, Starling Marte, those types of players, the Dodgers, what they have done, they've become such a behemoth in every area of building an organization. It's not just that they can go out and throw a bajillion dollars at Mookie Betts and sign him for over the next decade as if they're, as if they're still going to be a planet earth in 2030, but um, they also do things like scout internationally and bring in guys like Julio Arias uh, who they signed at 16 um, and were able to uncover where he was in Mexico. Uh, They can go, into the draft and bring players into a developmental pipeline that has the best people in the game of baseball already working there. The Dodgers are doing this at every single level, not only in their minor league system, but in how they evaluate and bring in major league talent as well. And that's what's so fascinating about this team. You look at the the Dodgers and some of the key contributions that they've gotten in recent years and two guys stand out to me that really tell the story of what the Dodgers have become and why. And those two guys are Chris Taylor and Max Muncie, because those two players were somewhat middling prospects in terms of their ranking. They were kind of back end top 30 prospects for the Mariners and the A's, and they both made it up to those organizations. The Dodgers acquired them in different ways. Chris Taylor was a trade uh, a few seasons back for Zach Lee, I believe was the Um, component that went to the Mariners uh, in that deal, which was in 2016. Max Muncy signed as a free agent, but neither one of those guys was really on a trajectory to be what they have become. But the Dodgers have brought out of them such mammoth major league contributions. I mean, especially Max Muncy. Max Muncy has two top 15 MVP finishes in the last three seasons. And that's only because this year we haven't had any votes cast yet. Uh, And obviously, you know, it's a a much different season. And Max Muncy didn't have quite the numbers uh, this year that he did the two seasons prior. But that's a guy who in a couple of seasons that he played in the big leagues with the A's was a pretty mediocre major leaguer. Gets signed by the Dodgers, jumps into the big leagues in 2018. And he has been a star for that team. That is what the Dodgers do that is so far and away better than other organizations is they seem to be able to wring every last drop of talent and performance out of everybody who comes through that system. Uh, And that's where I would place them. The Rays, obviously, if I was starting a franchise from the ground up and I wanted a front office that knew how to evaluate and draft and develop talent homegrown to make it to the major league level, uh, the Rays would probably be that group. You look around. Major League Baseball right now, not just Andrew Friedman, who, of course, is with the Dodgers, but Hein Bloom, who's with the Boston Red Sox, the amount of managers uh, in the big leagues right now who have come up through the Rays system. You know, Charlie Montoyo jumps to mind. Um, that franchise right now is kind of a, uh, a breeding ground for what organizations want to be able to do. But the Dodgers are doing that and so much more. Uh, and so that that organization is just, you know, if you were someone who was unfortunate enough to be born in a National League West city and you grew up cheering for a team that just seems so outmatched and so outwitted in the National League West, I don't know anyone like that. Um, <laughs> but it would really be discouraging to look at the Los Angeles Dodgers and go, oh, I don't know if that team's ever going to lose a National League title ever again. Well, so, you know, that's fine. Yeah, there's one name I'll, I'll add to that list that you had before, which is Justin Turner. Yeah. 
Yeah, another Justin perfect Turner. example. Justin Turner was DFA'd by the Mets. Right. And the Dodgers turned him into Justin Turner. Yeah, into one of the better third basemen in the game going right. on five-plus years now. Um, but the, the other thing the Dodgers are able to do, which I saw this on Twitter the other day. I wish I could credit it. I can't remember who said it. Um, but because of the financial resources the Dodgers have, one thing they do really well are able to do with that money is paper over some of the cracks. And I'll give you an example of that. Tyler, do you remember Yadier Alvarez? I do. I do. Yeah, he was a, a tall pitcher in the Dodgers system, meant to be their ne- next big ace. He had some control problems, but if you were able, if he was ever able to put all that together, um, you know, would be essentially what we think of as Dustin May right now at the very least. And he's kind of gone away. And for other systems, we might be sitting here thinking about like, well, the, man, they really failed with him and um, nothing good ever came of that, huh? And that's a real failure on the organization. But because of the, the trades the Dodgers have made and being able to trade with the Reds and take on big contracts in, you know, in order to get a Jeter Downs and a Josiah Gray and add them to the system and turn Jeter Downs again into Mookie Betts or Josiah Gray into their current number one prospect. Um, you know, just having the resources to do that, we don't look at the failures as much. And that's huge. That's great. That's, that means the failures aren't as big as a failure for them as they would be for other organizations. The Rays, for years, I remember Tim, An- not Tim Anderson, um, Tim Beckham, was, was a big deal for them. Somebody they had taken number one overall and didn't work out. Everybody thought, oh, that's a, that's a big issue for the Rays because they really need to hit on these number one prospects. Now they're in a better place than that. And if Wander Franco is just maybe all-star level instead of MVP level when he comes up, that'll be okay because they have so many other pieces. Um, but still, the, the Rays cannot afford to fail on some of these because they can't just go into the free agent market and go sign somebody if they're – outfield stud prospect doesn't work out something like that um so yeah if, you, if you're gonna bet on a team over the next five years it's always a better bet to bet on the one with a lot of money uh but the fact that the, the dodgers not only have the money but they use it towards player development and they also use it to bring in guys to that player development system and churn them out and make them better prospects and it's very clear to see that trajectory it's huge so uh, yeah, check back in again, I guess, in 2025, which is a crazy year to think about. Uh, but it, it's exciting that it's these two teams in the World Series and that, that this is a little bit of a debate. And with that, uh, we'll we'll wrap up this opening segment of this week's episode of the show before the show. Game two of the World Series coming up this evening. We're recording on Wednesday the 21st. So by uh, the time you hear this, it'll either be a, a tied series or the Dodgers will have the uh, the early hold on a series lead. I say that because last week we talked about, well, you know, Atlanta, they could punch their ticket. And then the Dodgers scored like a million runs in the first inning of a game that started like two hours after we finished recording. Um, So we'll just put all of the possible outcomes out there. And by tomorrow, when you hear this, you'll know better than we do as of right now. Um, so with that, we'll uh, we'll step aside from this opening segment of the show before the show. Benjamin Hill coming up to talk the business of minor league baseball and a whole lot more next. This past year has shown us that without your health, you have nothing. If you're not well, you can't work, look after yourself, or take care of your family. You can't enjoy the life you've worked so hard to build. That's why you need to prioritize taking care of your long-term health today, before it goes from good to bad to worse. 
So invest in your long-term health with Forward. Forward is intelligent medicine with a personal touch. Their doctors are dedicated to catching top killers like cancer and heart disease early before it's too late. And catching them early could save you tens of thousands of dollars in the long run. Everyone's health history is different, which is why Forward doctors personalize a health plan with you based on your genetics, lifestyle, and biometrics to achieve long-term results and ensure nothing gets missed. It's time to invest in a doctor that's invested in you. Go to GoForward.com today to protect your future health. That's GoForward.com. GoForward.com. It is time again to discuss the business of minor league baseball. And for that, we bring in our good buddy, Benjamin Hill. Hey, Ben. Hey, Tyler. Hello, Sam. Great to be talking to you on a beautiful Wednesday afternoon. And no technical difficulties this time around. We're talking via Zoom. And, uh, you know, life is just perfect. <laughs> first person to say that in 2020. Yeah. Um, well, let's dive in. We got a bunch to cover this week with Ben. Uh, first up, a great story that is on the site and certainly a bittersweet story uh, for anyone who grew up going to uh, games of maybe the most famous minor league team in the in the Northeast, in New England. And that is the Pawtucket Red Sox, who have formally sort of said goodbye to McCoy Stadium, which hosted them uh, for 50 years from 1970 through 2020. Obviously, no 2020 season, so it's been kind of a weird year uh, in Pawtucket and at McCoy Stadium, as it has been everywhere. But um, this is a, a great piece about a team that really probably would have had the biggest goodbye that we've ever seen to a ballpark uh, if they had gotten a chance to have a season and instead they were forced to uh, to adapt and do some different stuff this year to say goodbye to McCoy. Yeah, I mean, the story of 2020, you know, we saw it play out all across minor league baseball. And, you know, there's a lot of teams that for various reasons, you know, didn't get a chance to say goodbye the way they would have liked to in 2020 or in some cases to say hello. You know, teams like, uh, you know, the Rocket City Trash Pandas just uh, sitting on a new ballpark and same thing at Kannapolis and Wichita. So it's obviously not a totally unique story to Pawtucket, but it is unique it, with what you said, um, just the connection between that town, you know, Rhode Island's only affiliated team. Um, you know, they're firmly in Red Sox country and they've been a Red Sox affiliate for 50 years, a ballpark that was built during World War II and first hosted minor league baseball in 1946. Uh, famously, you know, that almost all baseball fans know, or, or many of them know, uh, McCoy Stadium in Pawtucket was the site of the longest ever professional baseball game in 1981, 33-inning uh, game, uh, uh, 32 of which were played consecutively uh, in April, and then the famous 33rd inning played two months later in June. Uh, so, you know, they always had that to kind of hang their hat on, in addition just to being Rhode Island's only affiliated team, uh, the much-beloved affiliation with the Red Sox. You know, fans in Red Sox country being able to, you know, go to Pawtucket and see uh, the franchise's future stars, you know, so many of whom, you know, played in Pawtucket before going to Boston Red Sox. So a real special relationship uh, between the, the town or the city, uh, the ballpark, the affiliation, everything. So, you know, it was going to be a big deal. Uh, 2020, the last season in McCoy, uh, a lot of sadness, you know, I think a lot of anger among some fans, even though the team is only moving 45 minutes away. They're moving out of Rhode Island. They're going to um, – Sam, where are they going? Worcester, Massachusetts. Worcester, Massachusetts. W-O-R-C-E-S-T-E-R, and it's somehow two syllables. Yeah, well, they're going to Worcester, uh, the second largest city in Massachusetts. And, um, you know, and so they can retain a lot of the fans, you know, who now have to go roughly, you know, an hour drive or so, but it's not going to be the same. 
And it certainly won't be the same in terms of a ballpark like McCoy, which again was built in 19 in the 1940s. So it was going to be a real bittersweet season, I'm sure very emotional. And then bam, it doesn't happen at all. So this story, you know, we could have written about the end of McCoy at any point, really, once we knew the season was canceled in 2020. But this story came out now because over the weekend, the team did a kind of final celebration, a grand finale farewell, uh, trying to get fans into the ballpark one last time through a variety of events. And this was highlighted by a 33-hour stretch of consecutive events, uh, 33, of course, a nod to the longest game of all time back in 1981, the 33-inning game. And uh, the reason they were able specifically to get 33 straight hours is they hosted a uh, scout sleepover on Saturday night, which you know took care of the overnight hours, which are kind of hard to populate with events otherwise. And uh, shout out to all those uh, hardy scouts who you know slept on the field in uh, October in Rhode Island when it was 40 something degrees at night. But you know, I'm sure they're scouts; they were prepared. Um, but you know, they had a, a ballpark open house. Uh, fans could walk around the field, you know, around the playing field, take pictures, roam around the stands. They did the final edition of their dining on the diamond program um, or initiative, you know, where they turned the playing field into a full service restaurant. And uh, just in general, just had a, a whole slate of uh, opportunities for fans to come and say goodbye. Um, certainly a letdown if you were expecting to see games in 2020, but uh, also much better than nothing. You know, in writing the story and talking to Bill Wanless, their longtime uh, public relations guy, I hadn't even realized that they were one of the few teams, Pawtucket was, uh, to not lay off or furlough any any uh, staff members. So the story wasn't just about this weekend. It was about everything they did during 2020 with community initiatives, uh, drive-through giveaways. Um, you know, they were the alternate training site for the Boston Red Sox. Dining in the Diamonds started in like late May or early June. So it was just kind of about the... Paul Sox's uh, final season at McCoy, uh, the final season that wasn't, and everything that went into that. And uh, yeah, really bittersweet and sad. And I think more than any other stadium, you probably do have more sad and disappointed people regarding this, uh, the, the saying goodbye to McCoy, than just about any other minor league baseball subplot of 2020. And Sam, uh, you are a, well, a Massachusetts guy, but you have your own memories, right, from McCoy, and that's a special place to you. Yeah, no, I've shared a few of those both on the site and on the podcast in the past. People might remember that I've talked about seeing Bronson Royo <clears throat> throw a no hitter at McCoy, which was a very formative experience. And even how I watch baseball games now, and if a guy goes up, you know, nine up, nine down in the first three innings, I think this could be the day for a perfect game because I, I've seen it happen before. Um, I, I've had birthday parties there. I remember watching uh, one year the Boston Celtics. I know this isn't a baseball memory, but the Boston Celtics had this killer comeback against the New Jersey Nets uh, in a playoff game. And we were, this was an age before cell phones. So we were following both on the uh, Jumbotron when they would provide updates there and also trying to watch a small TV that we could see from our seats in the press box. Uh, I, I'm a kid who grew up, Ben, you mentioned this in the story, fishing for autographs. I was going to um, ask you that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. We used to have like those little cheese ball um, buckets. Like we, you know, you would get them at Walmart or something like that. And when we were finished with them, we would load them up with baseballs and lower them down on string and try to get guys to, to sign baseballs uh, at Paw Sox games. There's a lot of good memories about there. The murals are something that stand out to me as well. Um, I ran the bases after the game. A lot of what people talk about for their best minor league memories for me happened in McCoy. 
Um, so getting to see it close like this is, is sad for me. And, you know, I've, I've got a, a nephew who's three and a niece who's one and I always dreamed about maybe taking them to games there, but um, you know, they were both born in Worcester. So now that's going to be our next opportunity for them is bringing them up there and taking them to games there. But um, Ben, one question I wanted to ask you is there is a small part of me that still hopes that maybe they could have a game there in 2021, kind of an official goodbye to McCoy. Um, but based on the activities of this 33 act, you know, 33 hour uh, event that they held there, it seems like it's pretty final. I think it is. I mean, uh, that is certainly a sentiment that a lot of people have. It's like, you guys got to play a, a regular season game there, you know, at least one more, please. Um, but I think the reality is, is um, the lease ends in January uh, 2021, and it's unclear exactly what will happen to McCoy then and who will be in control. And, uh, you know, it's an older ballpark and hard to upkeep and maintain. And I think the thinking is at this point that uh, to keep the facility at, um, you know, minor league baseball, professional baseball standards, um, you know, for a AAA club, um, you know, for months over the course of an offseason, once the lease expires, um, once a new ballpark opens up, um, I think they're just looking at that as something that is just too onerous of a task to do. Uh, I'm not saying that's the official word on it, but I think that's really the direction things are headed. And uh, if I was a betting man, which I usually am not, uh, I would say that we probably won't be seeing any more uh, minor league baseball at McCoy or certainly not any more uh, AAA Red Sox affiliated Worcester-based uh, baseball playing one final game there. Uh, but that is, you know, making a lot of people sad. Pretty legendary minor league venue. And uh, if you were one of the lucky ones to get a chance to say goodbye, a pretty cool event uh, in which to do so. And there is one more element to this uh, McCoy farewell, which is that later on in the year, I believe they're going to be holding kind of a ballpark sale in which people can go buy seats and that type of stuff to uh, to commemorate their, their love of McCoy. Yeah, there's going to be kind of an everything must go sale. I mean, I don't know how extensive it will be with uh, seats and that kind of thing. I think there will be some seats available is, is what I heard. Um, but, you know, they're not dismantling the entire ballpark because there you know, might be a use for it going forward, of course. But certainly, um, you know, some seats, uh, you know, all signage related to the Paul Sox. Just think about a minor league ballpark and all the team specific fixtures and signage and some seats and uh, random souvenirs and cleaning out the team store and, uh, you know, just all sorts of random ephemera that, you know, you're just not going to have a use for anywhere else. Uh, the team is going to make that available. I don't think they've announced the details, but before 2020 is out, uh, I was told you could expect a quote ball yard sale at McCoy's. So uh, I think locally based fans are certainly going to want to get in on that and get some sort of really unique piece of McCoy memorabilia that they can carry with them as sort of a uh, reminder of how special that place was to them. Or maybe some Brooklyn-based fans, too, just saying, if anybody's out there thinking about the holidays and you're uh, one of your favorite minor league baseball podcasters. Oh, I see. There you go. This was just all to get something for you. It always is, Tyler. Um, then let's switch gears, uh, and stay somewhat in a, in the same region. There is a new name for the minor league baseball team based in Lakewood, New Jersey, but it is not a new, uh, team name. It is a new location designator as the Lakewood blue claws. We're recording this on Wednesday, the 21st. This will actually become official tonight. The Lakewood blue claws, by the time you hear this will now be the Jersey shore blue claws, which, uh, is a, a move obviously designed to 
pull in more of a, a regional element uh, to their existence. But this is cool. It's uh, a new logo set that draws on, I know, a really popular um, alternate that they decided they were going to roll out for the 2020 season before. Obviously, that was put on the shelf. But it's a, a great look. And, and this is a neat idea for Lakewood uh, to incorporate more of this whole area of New Jersey and everything that comes along with, you know, what that term designates, or at least the pre MTV reality show uh, lineage of the term Jersey Shore designates. This is a neat one. I like this. Yeah, it's pretty cool. I mean, um, obviously things are weird right now. And usually in October, we're on pretty much at least a weekly basis in October and November talking about rebrands and not much is happening on that front right now, just given the, loss of the 2020 season and all the uncertainty surrounding 2021 still. But it's it's nice to be talking in October about some new logos and a bit of a rebrand. You know, as rebrands go, it's relatively mild in that the team is still going to be named the Blue Claws. They're still at the same ballpark. Um, but, you know, the Lakewood Blue Claws, the term, you know, the it's they play in Lakewood Township. But that's not a name that has a specific, you know, connotation with the Jersey Shore, especially the people who aren't familiar with the region. So rebranding the Jersey Shore really gives, um, it opens up themselves up just to say they're representing much more of New Jersey and that part of New Jersey, coastal New Jersey, uh, as well as just giving them a name that immediately resonates, uh, not just the Jersey Shore, but really all throughout the country in terms of people immediately understanding who they are, where they're from and what they're about. So, you know, they still have a a crab as the main logo, but they have a bunch of new uh, uh, logos uh, designed by Brandios tied into the Jersey Shore theme. Uh, the crab is now surfing in the primary logo. He's got sunglasses. There's a boogie boarding alternate logo. There is a uh, pretty cool sunglasses alternate logo. I know you guys are both fans of that reflect reflected in the sunglasses is a Ferris wheel in one lens and a, a roller coaster in the other. Um, you know, now it's a red, blue, and yellow, very vibrant kind of beachy uh, color scheme. So the whole thing is about really associating uh, Jersey uh, Jersey Shore with the blue claws. They're now the Jersey Shore Blue Claws going forward, uh, still a Class A Philadelphia Phillies affiliate. And uh, this is in line with what the team had been doing uh, in 2018 and 2019 after a new ownership group came on board. Uh, You know, they immediately set about doing things like adding carnival games on the outfield concourse, adding boardwalk style concession stands, you know, with the colorful signage, selling things like soft serve ice cream, a nine hole miniature golf course uh, on the right field side of the facility. Um, and of course, mini golf and carnival games and, you know, boardwalk style food are all hallmarks to the Jersey Shore experience. So that's already something that's available at Blue Claws Games. And now that um, these associations are much more further uh, strengthened just by the fact that the team is the Jersey Shore Blue Claws. So um, Wednesday night, that's all becoming official uh, at an event fittingly at, uh, you know, on the uh, beach uh, near the ocean uh, in Asbury Park at the historic convention hall. So, um, you know, a very appropriate place to do it. And uh, yeah, really cool to look at some new logos for once. And just what what do you feel like is going to be the reaction? You're somebody who's kind of like a affiliated guy. So did you grow up going to the shore? And what is the reaction going to be like up and down the shore, which is a pretty lengthy area? I mean, it's going from North Jersey through but some people call it central Jersey all the way to South Jersey. It's a pretty big area. And for one team to like plant its flag like this is, is pretty neat and exciting, but um, what do you feel like the, the local reaction is going to be? Yeah, I think this is going to be, uh, we're so used to, especially with team name changes, um, you know, so much blowback and fire your marketing director. And this is a disgrace and this is cartoonish and this is embarrassing. 
Um, very, think, very measured reactions. We yeah, very measured. Yeah, very measured, very um, sensible reactions in <laughs> what we see, especially on you know, social media. Um, but this one, just by switching Lakewood to Jersey Shore, and uh, given that the new logos are very much in tying in with where the team is already playing, um, I, I predict this will be one of the least polarizing rebrands we've seen in quite some time. Uh, I think there'll be like, uh, we'll, we'll achieve bipartisan consensus on this one that it's just a, a great refresh, a great update, great set of new logos. Um, and I'd be surprised if there are people who are genuinely upset with this. And I'm not sure, I, I know the Blue Claws I think updated their logo at least once, but you know they've really stayed pretty similar aesthetically throughout the course of their 20-year history. So I think you could also argue they just needed a bit of a refresh anyway, and they certainly got it in this case. And yeah, I grew up in uh, suburban Philadelphia area, and, and going to the shore, uh, Long Beach Island, Ocean City, Avalon, uh, various spots uh, throughout my childhood uh, in different configurations of people and for different reasons, but always just a great summertime place to go. And, uh, you know, one I have a lot of strong positive associations with. And uh, so I think it's a really cool rebrand because, you know, if you grow up in uh, New Jersey, PA, New York, uh, the Jersey Shore is likely part of your childhood and you have a strong set of memories and associations. And I think the rebrand really captures that. I think it'll also pull in people who travel to specific places on the Jersey shore don't necessarily realize maybe that there was a team that was close by that they hadn't heard of. And then all of a sudden you walk into a, you know, a place to get a sandwich and you see a pocket schedule for a team called the Jersey shore blue claws. And I think all of a sudden it, it opens up a whole larger element of, uh, of fandom, maybe to people who aren't from the area and uh, did not know that there was something there. And that's a, it's a really cool idea from, uh, from the Lakewood Blue Claws, now the Jersey shore blue claws. And uh, our final piece with Ben this week, we talked, I guess that was just last week about uh, the story of 2010's best promos and you've got 2011's coming up. It's, this is such a fun uh, jaunt for those of us who have been in the minor league baseball game for a little while, looking back on stuff and remembering like, Oh yeah, I remember when that, I remember when Will Farrell pitched for the round rock express what's coming up in the 2011 story. Yeah. Well, 2011 for right now, I'm leading these stories with the promos that won the Milby award for promo of the year, uh, just as a way to kind of give a consistency to the stories. Um, so in 2011, the best promo winner, as voted on by the fans online uh, via MILB.com, uh, you guys probably remember this one, but the Dallas Braden Bobble Belly. Given oh, yeah. Stockton ports. And uh, the story behind that was, uh, as you probably recall, Dallas Braden in 2010 pitched a perfect game on Mother's Day for the Oakland A's. Um, he is a Stockton native and proud of it. You know, Stockton is a town that I think uh, people have a lot of pride for because it's, it's, you know, been through some tough times. I mean, the economy really tanked there, especially uh, during the recession in like 2009. Uh, Stockton kind of got a bad rap nationally. And I think the people who are from there, you know, really like, like Dallas Braden, you know, really then just felt a sense of defensiveness and pride and saying, nah, you can't talk about our city that way. So long story short, he had gotten uh, 209 Stockton's area code. Uh, tattooed on his abdomen and um, in 2010 after he pitched the perfect game he went to a Stockton Ports game uh, for like a celebratory ceremony where he got the key to his hometown city of Stockton and during the ceremony he pulled up his shirt and um, you know revealed his abdomen to the entire crowd with the 209 area code emblazoned on it and the next season 2011 the Ports gave away a bobble belly 
uh, commemorating this moment of Stockton, uh, of uh, Dallas Braden, um, his belly bobbles in this figurine. And, uh, you know, he's lifting up his shirt and you can see his tattoo on his abdomen saying 209. So it's kind of funny to look back and be like, oh, yeah, that was the that was the promo we talked about a lot back in 2011. And, um, you know, looking beyond that, uh, the Golden Bobblehead Award started in 2011. Those are voted on, you know, within the industry at the promotional seminar at the end of the season, uh, which is now called the Innovator Summit. But the best overall promo in 2011 that won the Golden Bobblehead Award uh, was one that I covered a lot during the year. And I thought it was going to become this one that just all teams were going to adopt, especially after it won the Golden Bobblehead Award, which is peer voted. But we haven't seen much of this since 2011. The Fort Wayne Tin Caps um, did a their opening night in 3D, where they gave fans uh, 3D glasses when they walked in the ballpark and then had all these video board elements throughout the night that were in 3D. I remember thinking like, oh, we're going to see that all over minor league baseball, but we really haven't. <laughs> not, not much uh, 3D going on. Uh, but another one of 2011 that was, um, you know, that we've seen a lot of, at least in Fresno, who, who originated it in 2011. 2011 was the first taco truck throwdown uh, where in Fresno, where the Grizzlies would get local taco truck vendors to set up shop at the ballpark and have a giant taco fest at the ballpark. You know, every since ever since 2011, they've done it outside of the ballpark around the ballpark's exterior. And now it's even a two day event. But in 2010 uh, or tw in 2011, when it debuted, they did it on the on the concourse and drew almost 11,000 fans. So um, it was wildly successful, but maybe not even that fun to be there in the inaugural year because it was just so crowded. So those are some big ones. And then looking back, there's just all sorts of quirky stuff. We really see theme jerseys started to come into their own. Uh, in 2011. One that I found that I was like, wow, you know, this seems so long ago, but the Lehigh Valley Iron Pigs wore Twitter themed jerseys. So back in 2011, that was a like, pretty cutting edge uh, to wear a, a, they wore jerseys that said at Iron Pigs, all small case letters. Um, another great theme jersey of that year um, that I remember loving was uh, <clears throat> the Memphis Redbirds uh, to promote organ donation. They wore these um, jerseys that showed all the organs that are inside your body on the outside. Huh. So these guys had uh, jerseys that showed, you know, like the heart and lungs and liver and <laughs> intestines and whatever else is in there uh, on their jerseys. So I could go on and on. Uh, finally, another one that just so rooted in 2011. Um, if you remember, Charlie Sheen really had a moment oh, that year yeah. where he was quote unquote winning and uh, a promo that I got a lot of attention. Yes, the Lake Elsinore Storm. Uh, they had, on a on a Cinco de Mayo, oh boy, they had Charlie Shinko de Mayo, and um, they gave away a limited edition bobblehead of Charlie Sheen, like in a sombrero, and uh, they retired Rick Wild Thing Vaughn's number ninety nine jersey. You know, who of course uh, Charlie Sheen played him in the movie uh, Major League. They had of course Tiger Blood cocktails. Who knows what was in that? So it is fun to go back and see those very specific pop culture ones. Uh, you know, like a Twitter theme night and a uh, Charlie Sheen promotion in Lake Elsinore. And uh, as I said, I could go on and on. There's a lot of interesting stuff in here. Uh, you know, Altoona Curve giving away Tidy Whitey's team logo, Tidy Whitey's. I don't think that's been done before or since. Um, the Lull Spinners doing a human home run when they shot the human cannonball over the fence, like for a literal home and human home run. And he landed in a net that was outside of the ballpark. 
I don't think any team has done that since. And on and on. It, it is fun to go back and uh, travel down memory lane. So uh, that'll be on the site uh, Thursday. Same time. It is minor league baseball starts. so much. Yeah, I know. <laughs> I know. All these uh, wonderful things. We'll, we'll get them back someday. And until then, we'll talk about things that happened uh, the better part of a decade ago. Because why not? Why not? I uh, weirdly still remember where I was when I uh, first heard about the Lake Elsinore Storm doing that whole Charlie Sheen promo. Remember remember Charlie Sheen? Remember that? Remember when we were all freaking out about that for a minute? Where were you, Tyler? Where I you? was uh, moving back. It was my final year in South Carolina in, in Myrtle Beach with the Pelicans. I had just gotten back from uh, working in Australia with uh, the Australian Baseball League's first season. So I was at a gas station, I think, in Nebraska on my move back from Denver to Myrtle beach. And I remember, I think like our promo director uh, with the Pelicans had emailed it to me, like, and check out this one. And uh, if I remember all the, all the timing of all of this correctly. And yeah, I, I just remember the tiger blood cocktails. Like I remember that. I don't even remember what the hell he was talking about with tiger blood. What What was he talking about with anything? Yeah. I think but that's an they jumped on it. They did a good job. Yeah, I mean, we're still talking about it now. Exactly. Uh, Benjamin Neal, you can find uh, all of his stuff on the site at MILB.com. And Ben is on Twitter as well at BenViz. And uh, we'll do it again next week, man. Thanks. Hey, sounds like a plan. Great talking to you guys. Good day. We are into the offseason, ordinarily a time on the baseball calendar at MILB.com where we'd be rolling out our organization all-star stories and doing all those kinds of fun season review things. Obviously, 2020 uh, did not make that possible for us. So in place of those, we have come to a, uh, a different style of offseason story, and that is state of the system. First handful of those stories uh, of which are up at MILB.com. Right now, we are going in reverse uh, organizational order based on 2020 record. So we started, sorry, Pirates fans, we keep doing this to you on this episode of the show. Started with the, the Pittsburgh Pirates. Um, then we moved on to the Texas Rangers, the Detroit Tigers, the Boston Red Sox, all four of those stories up on the site right now. And uh, Sam, yours ran today, which is about the Boston Red Sox. And it is truly bizarre to be talking about the literal Boston Red Sox as being one of the worst teams in Major League Baseball this year. Um, but a team that obviously has a, a good amount of talent already in that system and is positioning itself with, yes, those buzzwords, financial flexibility uh, going forward from 2020. Tell us about the state of the uh, the Boston system coming out of this year. Yeah, so we started this uh, new series, as, as you mentioned, state of the system, and we broke it down into different categories, which are system strengths, areas for growth, what's changed in, in 2020 as a whole, uh, alternate site standouts, impact rookies, and next big thing. I'm going to stick with the system strengths for the Red Sox right now. We didn't have them necessarily ranked very highly coming into this year. Um, even after adding Jeter Downs, this was still a, a farm system well placed within the bottom 10 uh, of baseball. Um, but if you look at the system after – what they've been able to do this year, both in the major leagues and at the alternate site in Pawtucket, I think the strength is very clearly the infield. Uh, we got to see Bobby Dahlbeck this year at, at the major league level. He came up normally a third baseman, but hasn't moved Rafael Devers off of third. So he moved over to first, especially after Mitch Moreland got traded. Uh, should be okay over there, but the power came immediately to the major leagues. A uh, guy hit eight home runs, only Kyle Lewis and Luis Robert hit more homers among major league rookies in 2020. 
Um, so he seems pretty well firmly established at first base. The strikeouts are still an issue with Bobby Dahlbeck. He struck out, I think, at, at least 40% of his plate appearances in the majors this year. would be interesting to see how major league pitchers continue to adjust to him. Uh, but the fact that he was homering in five straight games, becoming the quickest player to ever do that in his career, uh, just goes to show that the power is real and it is playing at the majors, and that's great. Tristan Cassis and uh, Jeter Downs, we've talked about before. Cassis, they played at both third base and first base at the alternate site. He only played first base uh, during his first full season in 2019, so it was interesting to see them move him back across the diamond to third. Uh, but everybody who talked about his time at the alternate site was really surprised at how well he did. This is somebody who came up to Class A Advanced Salem at the very, very tail end of 2019. He hasn't even sniffed double A or triple A yet, but there he was at a triple A facility facing basically double A and triple A arms and seemed to be thriving uh, really well there, showing it off his power. Um, I think he even homered off Tanner Houck, who was a good major league reliever there for them this year. Uh, Jeter Downs has played both short and second in the Dodgers and red systems. Um, red Sox seem to think he's pretty well set at second base, which is good for them because they have Xander Bogarts at short uh, and they have a clear opening at second Jose Peraza. They thought might be a solution this year for them. He didn't end up being that uh, they also added Hudson Potts in a trade from the Padres and they drafted Nick York, uh, a second baseman who's further down than downs right now. Uh, they're big believers in Nick York. They think if he would have had a full high school season, he would have been more highly ranked by outside sources. They like his bat right now. A lot of people thought he was probably more of a third round pick than a first round pick. Time will tell on that, but uh, Billy McMillan, Pawtucket manager, was basically running camp at alternate at the alternate site in Pawtucket, uh, pointed out pretty quickly that Nick York showed up and got a single off Brian Mata in his first at bat. Uh, and if you were to show up there and not know anything about any of the players, you might think Nick York was an older player, just the way he, he fit in really well. So the infield seems to be a, a point of strength. Pitching seems to be a weakness right now for the Sox. They, it's been a while since they developed a real homegrown starter. It's really been since Clay Buckles. Tanner Houck was that this year, but he only got in three starts, not fully prepared to declare him a, uh, a, you know, a boom prospect given what he did, but, he should be in the rotation next year, and that's huge for him after he was bouncing up around a whole bunch of uh, roles in 2019. He ended up in the bullpen with Pawtucket, then became a starter in the Fall League. And, Tyler, you got to see him in the Premier 12 tournament last year. Uh, they really like what he's done with his four-seamer and his sinker, and then he's also worked with the slider. Seems to be using all three of those pitches pretty equally. He also has a little bit of a splitter that he didn't throw much in the majors, but – everything seems to be syncing up pretty well for Tanner Houck. So it, it seems like the organization is trending upward with things that happen. I know a lot of people in the organization are very excited for Brian Mata. I want to see it on a real minor league field first, um, but they think he has the potential for even four plus pitches. We'll see how that goes. Uh, it seems like things have improved. And the fact that they have the number four overall pick coming next year is only going to help that. I know that's a difficult sell right now at a time when Mookie Betts is home ring in game one of the world series and they traded him and Alex Verdugo had a great, great year this year, but he's no Mookie Betts. And uh, it's going to be years until we can really fully evaluate that trade to see what they got in downs and Connor Wong. Um, but I, I would say at a time when Red Sox fans should be focused on the farm system, I'm still not going to say it, it's in the upper half 
but it's definitely true tr has an upwards trajectory right now. And I think we could see big years next year out of Tristan Casas. Uh, if Tanner Houck looks like a major league starter again, that's huge for the Red Sox at a time when they haven't been developing pitching. And if Brian Motto is as good as the alternate side, as everybody said, then he could be a top 100 prospect as well. So lots to keep an eye on at the very least uh, at a time when I think Red Sox fans should be focused on the farm. Tyler, you had the Rangers farm system that ran last week. What can you tell us about them? Yeah, it's interesting to see uh, Rangers fans' reactions uh, to this because we tweeted it out and uh, the Rangers team account retweeted it. And there was a lot of frustration in the replies to it that, uh, you know, we've been told this for so long and blah, blah, blah. Um, I really do think there are a lot of reasons for Rangers fans to be very optimistic about what is coming. The thing that I think is probably the biggest pressing issue uh, for the Rangers and for Rangers fans right now is that the vast majority of the uh, the top prospects in that system, it's very uh, top loaded on the position player side. There's not a ton of pitching talent, 12 of the top 15 prospects in that system uh, are position players. And that's something that Paul Kruger, uh, the director of minor league operations for the Rangers uh, told me, but from all of those guys who took part in the alternate site, uh, he could not stop raving about pretty much all of their performances. Um, I know one name, that he brought up multiple times was Steel Walker, who was uh, acquired by the Rangers and just trade with the White Sox. Uh, and Steel Walker, an outfield prospect, who I guess just made the absolute most of his time uh, in the alternate training site this year. The other thing that really stood out is how much the Rangers were able to get some of their top prospects major league time this year. And that included some guys that maybe it was a little bit more um, expected of coming into this 2020 season, you know, Anderson Tejeda getting some time, Leota Tavares getting some time. Uh, Anderson Tejeda would have been less expected. He had only played uh, a class A advance with down East. Uh, Leota Tavares, the outfielder, he had seen some time at double A Frisco, but there were some guys who were very surprising. And Sam, I know, we talked about this before I even got a chance to talk uh, with Paul Kruger, but we were both kind of going back and forth about how Sam Huff had really surprised us, the catching prospect, uh, who was pretty well down the developmental track, at least in terms of where he had seen uh, his time. He hadn't played up uh, above uh, Class A Hickory coming into this year, but uh, saw some time in the major leagues. I think only got a chance to play in 10 big league games, I want to say, but put up really, really impressive numbers. Uh, the Rangers got a couple of their recent uh, early round draft selections and Davis Wenzel and Justin Foscue uh, some time at the alternate site. So that's really what probably stood out most. The fact that they recognized kind of early on um, really after slipping below 500, I think they were 10 and 10 after 20 games and then came, uh, you know, the Fernando Tatis Jr. Grand Slam and everything that came along with that. And the Rangers really fell apart after that, but they utilized that to get some of these younger guys more experience uh, in game situations than they were getting at the alternate training site. And I think that has the potential to really pay off with some big dividends down the road into 2021 and beyond. Um, what will be really interesting to see is where the pitching side goes for Texas from here. Cole Wynn, uh, a guy the Rangers are really excited about. Um, he had a chance to be around the major league guys at the alternate training site and, um, you know, take part in some competitive at-bats there. Uh, they're excited to have Hans Kraus back healthy. Hans Kraus, uh, right-handed pitching prospect, who's one of the most unique guys in minor league baseball with his delivery and his mechanics on the mound and, and his persona on the mound as well. He's kind of a, a Mark Fidrich kind of character. He talks to himself, and he's a, a colorful guy on the mound by all accounts. He had surgery to remove a bone spur in his pitching elbow last year, late in 2019, 
And uh, he is getting work in uh, at instructional league with the Rangers right now. And um, so that's another key piece to the Rangers pitching puzzle. Um, The other thing that I think is important for Rangers fans to take into account is the fact that this new globe life park seems to be much more, uh, I don't want to say pitcher friendly, but at least more neutral than uh, the, the past ballpark at Arlington slash globe life, whatever. Um, so that's something that you're no longer, I think, trying to develop pitchers to get just beat around in a, a ballpark that really can victimize them. Now it seems like it'll play a little bit more even handed. So that's something to, to take into account too. Not to say that, you know, having a, a dearth of pitching talent in your top 15 is a, is a good thing, but I don't think it's necessarily as bad as if this was the case for the Rangers five years ago. Um, but the, the one guy who really, I think everybody with the Rangers is is most excited about is Josh Young, who we had on the show uh, a couple of months ago. And Josh, a, a third base prospect who brings some power. And, uh, and as we learned very quickly into our interview, just has the mindset of somebody who you'd be really excited to build a major league organization around. Uh, I know he had a, a terrific alternate training site uh, stretch and uh, really impressed the front office with not only what he, he was able to do, uh, on the the field and as part of practices and intra-squad games and all that type of stuff. But it really seemed like from a leadership and a, a vocalization standpoint, um, very much impressed Texas's brass as well. So there are some bright spots uh, in the Rangers organization and uh, some guys who may be, you know, fast-tracked uh, a little bit quicker than you may have assumed uh, you would see them in Texas. So some some good stuff on the way for Rangers fans. Yeah, and, and two things I want to add just quick. I think you said something about Sam Huff and played above Hickory. He did play at high A down East for a little bit last year at the very least, but also your point about this new ballpark, Tyler, you and I have talked about like, what if we could see a modern game at the polo grounds? Doesn't this feel a little bit like that with that center field? Yeah, it does. It is. uh, And it's so interesting too watching the way the dynamics of that ballpark change when the roof is open versus when it's closed. Um, You know, I think it was game six or game seven of the NLCS when they had the roof open, it just seemed like they were playing in an entirely different stadium, but yeah, anything that jumps off the bat to center field, it's like, well, that'll probably die out there. It's uh, it's cavernous in some areas. And in some areas, it feels like you're playing, uh, you know, in, in a lot more similar environs to what Texas had prior to this year. Yeah. And it actually got me very excited to watch Christian Pache uh, in this last round, because Christian Pache, I think has the best range of any prospect outfielder right now uh, and getting to see him roam that outfield was, was really exciting. And, and they also have like the right height. We've seen this happen with Mookie Betts a bunch and Cody Bellinger and Pache did this a little bit as well. Um, but the, the fence is like just the right height for uh, outfielders to actually stretch out and jump over and, and rob homers. Um, it's not too tall. It's not too short. It, it's like just at the perfect height to make it look like they're dunking every time they do that. Um, but it's been really interesting to see how this park has played uh, on this stage because, uh, you know, I, I, I wasn't sure how I felt about this game being in Arlington and, and um, you know, why this place, I know it's, it's a first year stadium. Everything's updated there. It's a great time to put it on the big stage. Um, but it's, a, it's been a great learning experience to see how that that'll play and how that'll affect some of their decisions going forward. I mean, Sam Huff, being a big time power prospect, how's it going to affect him playing in a park like that um, is fascinating to see. Two other ones we have on the site right now while we're talking about the state of system real quick. 
the Pittsburgh Pirates, which was written by our colleague, John Parker, and the Detroit Tigers, who was written by Kelsey Hennigan, who we've had on the show before, obviously. Um, both intriguing systems for, for differing reasons. I think John uh, quite rightly ends his piece about like what's next for the Pirates. It's like, well, you get the number one overall pick and that's huge. And uh, I will preemptively say congrats on getting Kumar Rocker. That seems like yeah. written in ink at this point for the Pirates. Um, they, they need a little bit of excitement. Key Brian Hayes brought that this year as a rookie of the year candidate, uh, but he's going to be graduating. And who's the next guy after him? Uh, it's probably going to be rocker, but it's going to take until July when the, the trade or when the uh, draft happens this year for him to officially enter the system. Um, so the pirates at a time when they really could use a really strong system, it might not be until the draft or maybe some offseason trades that they pull off uh, to really add to that pl- place. And the tigers we've talked about for a while now uh, they kind of took the next step this year uh, after so much, focus on their pitching side between Casey Mize, Tarek Scoobal, Matt Manning, uh, on and on down the list. They went really heavy with position players in this year's draft. They got Spencer Torkelson first overall, uh, also added Dylan Dingler, a catching prospect. Uh, So they're a little bit more well-rounded now than they were a couple months ago. But, uh, you know, Mize struggled at times in the major series. Scoobal struggled at times. Was that just getting their feet underneath them and, and understanding how the major leagues works? Or do we have to reassess who they are as pitchers? Uh, it's going to be probably another year until we have an answer to that. But uh, Tiger system on the whole is more well-rounded. And I think that's a good place to be for a rebuilding franchise in that space. So you can check out all those stories at MILB.com. We've got the other 26 major league organizations coming up between now. And I believe we roll out the final one, uh, the week of Christmas. So these will be coming uh, fast and furious for the next couple of months. And we're excited to bring them to you. And uh, that'll do it for this segment, uh, discussing state of the system, something we'll be doing over the next couple of months. And coming up, we're going to hear from Joe Bloss on a fascinating story that he's got about a minor league legend. That's next. Diving into minor league history on our uh, weekly conversation with one of our writers from MILB.com. As Joe Bloss joins the show, you can find on Twitter at JT Bloss. Joe, what's going on? How are you? Hey, guys. What's up? Happy to be here. Absolutely. We're happy to have you. This is a, a great story that's up on the site right now about, a. I feel like, a name that minor league baseball fans are familiar with. And obviously, there's a, a different uh, connection to the name. It is also the name of a town with a lot of music history and all of that. But there was actually a star player in the minor leagues for a long time named Muscle Shoals. He was named Leo Shoals, but uh, Muscle became the nickname. And as you can tell by the photo at the top of Joe's story, it's pretty obvious why. He's got like a Ted Klazuski thing going on where he cuts the sleeves of his jersey up to basically his shoulders to show off the fact that he has gigantic biceps, which is a problem I've never had. Um, but Joe, tell us about uh, about Muscle Shoals. Give us kind of the, the rundown of this story, and we're going to dig into it because it is a fascinating piece on a, a really fascinating character in minor league baseball history. Yeah, exactly. You know, I wanted to write something about the uh, the Appalachian League history just because of the changes that are coming to that circuit, you know, next season. And, uh, you know, a, a name I couldn't really get around when, when looking up some of the history of the Appy League was Muscle Shoals. And um, he really w- was one of a kind. Um, you know, he hit 300, over 300 homers in the minor leagues, but never made the majors. And, and um, he played 15 seasons, yet some for some reason one or the other would always find his way back 
to the Appy League. Um, he played there in his third pro season and his final season um, with, a, with a few different stints in between. And, and sort of what the Appy League meant to him was just that, you know, it was great people. The people loved him. The fans loved him. And uh, he seemed to play really well there a lot of the time. So um, that, that was kind of something I wanted to dig into. And, and as we'll talk about here, uh, he, was, uh, he was really, really a fascinating guy. This career for him, um, you know, starting in a, a league and a level that are so distant now, the, the league name, obviously talking about the Appy League, uh, not necessarily the case. But, you know, Class D was a thing that existed at that time. There, the minor leagues were so um, differently codified back then compared to what they are now. And this is a time when you get signed to a professional contract and you get sent to a place, um, you know, in large circumstances, a lot of guys get sent pretty far from home and they go to play at a level that hasn't existed for 50 years and all that. What was the genesis of his career? How did he get started on the, the professional baseball pathway? Yeah, it was kind of funny. Um, when he was in high school, he started working. He, he was kind of lucky to get a job at, at a tool manufacturer. And, uh, you know, the company he worked at had a, um, had a baseball a league with different companies around locally, not professionally or anything. And uh, he started really tearing it up there, you know. And uh, an umpire in that league actually, you know, got him a tryout with the Cardinals, uh, the St. Louis Cardinals. And he was able to to actually, you know, earn a professional contract that way. And then um, after, I think, two seasons at, at different Class D leagues, he ends up in the Appy League. And, and he wasn't even really happy about it because that's a, that was his third year in a row playing at Class D. Um, but it ended up working out. Um, he had a, a great season. The fans loved him almost immediately. They actually started, um, you know, complaining when rumors of a of a promotion came up, and and um, I think that was kind of what got uh, Muscle Shoals started as a uh, you know an Appy League legend was that first year. And this story just has so many twists and turns that I love, and it it feels almost cinematic. Um, which I know comes from, you know, the the text itself and, and all that happened in Muscle Shoals, his career going off to war, coming back with some health issues, worrying he was never going to play baseball again, ended up playing again uh, in the Appy League because he was such a local legend down there. And he'd tell one story about how one ga- game he's sitting in the dugout and an army helmet just drops in his in his lap and it's got money in it for everybody raising money for him. Um, but what was your favorite detail to kind of uncover as you dug deeper into his career? Wow, that's a great question. And, um, you know, I, I feel like every every time I, you know, turned the page and found something else, it, it kind of topped the, um, the, you know, the greatest example. I think I think what I would have to go with is what the, you know, I started the story with was that um, I think it was the 1949, 1946 season. So it was this it was his first year back after fighting in World War II, and um, he had a great season. And the fans all year long were voting for who would be the, the Kingsport Cherokees MVP. And he was he was leading it all season long. You know, had a great year. And then at the very end of the year, one of his teammates actually overtook him and, and won MVP, and he won the prize of a watch. His teammate and the fans who loved muscles so much said, "Oh, hold on." we're going to get muscle his own watch and they, they put together a fund and bought him his own watch just so that, you know, even though he didn't win the MVP, they showed him how much, you know, they loved him. Um, I, I thought that was a good example of, of sort of relationship, the people and the, 
just just that idea of like giving away something to the MVP. Um, you know, I I don't know if it's more of a comment I have or, or a question, but like for either of you guys, like should we bring that back? I just love that detail so much of like everybody voting on something and giving. And maybe there's all sorts of things with uh, you know a, a compensation and and how that works, but. Uh, it, it's one of those old timey stories that I just love of, of this, of like, yeah, you get first place is a, is a great watch and second place is a razor. It, it co- screams of like Glenn Gary, Glenn Ross of, uh, you know, first, first place, uh, is a car. Second place, a set of steak knives, third place, you're fired. Um, but <laughs> do you feel like that's anything we could ever bring back? Is that that method of just rewarding players for great seasons and tying them to their local community at the same time? Yeah, I mean, I think I think definitely, even though we're going back like 70 years, I think like the, the kind of the spirit of that whole system kind of still exists in the minors. If you guys catch, you know, what I'm saying there in, in that, like the that closeness that exists in these, you know, these communities and between players and fans, I think, you know, still exists. And um, it's pretty amazing that that we can go back that far and things still work that way. Joe, another thing that's so interesting about the story, and we find this a lot, it seems like, with um, you know professional ball players and minor leaguers of uh, a much earlier age, and um, you know a lot of it probably due in large part to the fact that you learn these stories well after the fact. But Muscle Shoals kind of had his own. Uh, I don't know if you would say demons necessarily, but there's a story about. Uh, you know, he played for uh, a manager in Olivanic who tried enacting a curfew um, because of some of uh, Muscle Shoals' uh, after-work extracurricular activities, and then that didn't work. So he basically told the rest of the team, like, just go out, have some, have some fun, have some drinks. But there was a time when uh, Muscle Shoals, there are varying accounts of this, but he uh, reportedly got drunk and wielded a knife in a bar and ended up getting shot in the stomach. And there are, you know, we are living in an age where I think we recognize about virtually everyone who has ever lived. There are no just clean, true hero stories. Everybody has their own demons. Everybody has their own dark sides. What was that side for Muscle Shoals in his career? Obviously, there are things when you come back from war that are going to be grossly complicated as well. Uh, but this is something that it seems like he kind of warred with throughout his life. Yes, yeah, certainly. And and what I used for this story was actually a book that he had written with a, with an author named George Stone. And, um, you know, in that book, Muscle was, was pretty, you know, he was pretty upfront. He was pretty frank that, you know, he wasn't, he wasn't the greatest guy, especially when he was younger and that, that he learned a lot of lessons and that things certainly changed once he got married, once he became a father. But, um, you know, it just shows that he was a real guy who had, you know, real problems and, and, you know, fought through them and, and became better and learned from them. Um, and, and that story, of course, where he got shot, um, in his first season, in the Appalachian League is really the, you know, the most uh, obvious example of, of what, you know, his, his vices maybe did to him, but, um, you know, that he learned from them. Um, you know, he was a different player after that. He was a different person after that, more importantly, and, um, you know, became a better teammate, a better friend, and, uh, you know, a better, you know, uh, contributor to society after, after, you know, learning his lesson there. And, uh, just to, to tie this whole thing to, together, uh, you know, this is somebody who, who kind of chose to go back there. I know you you quote him at some point saying, like, I really wanted to get out of uh, the Appy League and it just never really happened for him. And as you also quote in the story, at one point there were, threatened, there were threats of a riot happening if you're ever called up. But 
Um, do you feel like this is ever going to happen again? I mean, so much of whether players get called up is, is decided now by organizations and, and the minor leagues is structured very differently now uh, than it was you know, at the time. But uh, having somebody really become a local legend and not just at like a triple A level, but so much further down. Um, do you think we'll ever see that again, or, or is baseball just too different? Honestly, I, I, it's sad to say, but no, I, I don't think so. And, and I, I believe, uh, if I'm remembering correctly, Muscle at one time did get a chance to go up to the to the big leagues and, and turned it down because he his I want to say it was because his firstborn child was was due very soon, if I if I'm not mistaken. Um, but if you guys look at you know the system that that existed in in muscles time and, and now it's just so different, you know, it's much more um, streamlined system. Not, no, there's not hundreds and hundreds of teams all across the country. Like, like there is, like there was back then. So I, I don't see the opportunity for someone to be that good for that long in the minors and not get a chance. Um, but there are certainly still guys who, who stick around in the minors here and there. Maybe they're a veteran kind of guy who um, definitely collect their, um, you know, they get a lot of fans in, in, you know, let's say the International League or something where they, they spend several seasons there. And, and um, you know, because it's a circuit that, that isn't, you know, all across the country, um, the fans get to know those guys. And um, maybe it's not to the extent of, of legend status that Muscle had, but I, I think we get close. Well, unlike uh, Chevy Chase, which the, the town in Maryland came well before the actor, uh, Muscle Shoals, born in 1916, the town of Muscle Shoals, Alabama, not incorporated until 1923. So I don't know if he had the nickname by seven years old, but it's a possibility. Maybe he beat out the town. So, I actually. So what happened was um, I, I kind of noted just very quickly in the story. But at some point, um, a, a local newspaper columnist had seen him hit, I think, batting practice or something. And um, he his he noted in this column that, um, you know, this guy muscle shoals can really hit the ball far. And that was the first, you know, use of it. But the craziest part was growing up shoals was spelled S H O L E S, but the town muscle shoals, Alabama is S H O A L S. And that is how, and that is how muscle shoals was referred to from then on out. So it's basically this column changed his spelling of his last name. Huh? Who knew? What a time when you were just a newspaper columnist in the 1940s and could just make up whatever you wanted. Exactly. <laughs> Here's a nickname, and we're changing the way you spell your last name now. <laughs> this is seriously such a great story. It's up on the site right now. Uh, Muscle Shoals, known as the uh, the Babe Ruth of the Minor Leagues. We talked about the, the Babe Ruth of the Mexican League last week, Babe Ruth of the Minor Leagues this week, um, and a great piece from Joe Bloss, which is at MILB.com right now. Joe is on Twitter at JT Bloss, and uh, great stuff as always, man. Thanks so much for, uh, for telling us about it. You got it, guys. Talk soon. I only have one more episode of this podcast in the month of October, which means we only have like 10 more total episodes before this godforsaken year is over. I was thinking like when you – you introduced this as the 281st episode. I was like, we have 19 until 300. Yeah. Should we start planning it? But also when would that be? And like, what can we do? <laughs> it's not like I can fly out there and we can like rent a, you know, 
uh, a bar's back room for all the uh, nerdy fans of the show before the show to come out and support us. Don't even, don't even, don't, uh, like to, don't even make me dream like that. I was, no. Uh, Remember the world. Remember life. It was all fun. <laughs> uh, we'll get, the, we'll we get, get there soon enough, though. Soon enough. Before we get out of here, Sam Dykstra has a nationwide prospect fact of the week. Yeah, so I'm going to borrow from a recent toolshed column I did that was just a lot of fun to put together. Uh, a lot of fun facts that are kind of perfect for this segment. So I'll, I'll fire off a, a few real quick. Um, but while we all have World Series on the mind, we talked about it in the first segment. It's still ongoing by the time you hear this. Uh, I'm going to stick with the World Series and go back to World Series players and their experience in the minor league postseason. Uh, is that Does that necessarily tell us any stories about their success for the World Series? Maybe, maybe not. You, your mileage will vary on that. But uh, a couple of my favorite minor league postseason facts from this year's World Series rosters. Uh, Clayton Kershaw only had one minor league postseason start. It was in August 22nd, 2006. For the GCL Dodgers, which is interesting because the Dodgers don't have a GCL affiliate anymore. They, they moved over to the AZL. So that's fascinating in itself. But his catcher that day, Tyler, I'm sure you probably know this, so I'm going to allow you to actually say it. Who was his catcher that day? I actually don't know this. You don't know? Oh. I didn't read Tool Shed is what I'm saying. I'm That's sorry. fine. That's fine. <laughs> That's it. Our coworker, Chris Trapodi, uh, a couple of weeks ago, slacked me to say like he was yelling through his phone when uh, you couldn't say Stan Musial. Right, right, So right. I wanted to give you the layup on this one. It was Kenley Jansen. Kenley Jansen. That was what I was going to say. Of course. I was yelling through my phone to this. And of course, Tyler uh, edits this show. So he probably will edit it. So it's just Tyler yelling, Kenley Jansen. But um, now I have to edit that part out too. Of you saying that I edit it. I'm just giving you more work, is what I'm doing. Cut. (laughs) Cut. Anywho, (laughs) Kenley Jansen used to be a catcher in the Dodger system, eventually transitioned to the mound. But it is very funny to me that he caught Clayton Kershaw's only minor league postseason start. Big reason for that Clayton Kershaw climbed through the minor leagues very quickly. Um, didn't really have enough time to make more minor league postseason starts than that one. Uh, but just funny how that kind of works. Justin Turner, who we mentioned earlier in the show and how he had previously been in the Mets system and the red system. He last appeared in a minor league playoff game in 2007, a long time ago with class, a advanced Sarasota, the <laughs> Sarasota reds. Uh, he went one for 11 over three games in that Sarasota hasn't existed as a minor league club since 2009 because the Pirates similarly, made, uh, because the Reds moved their uh, spring training facility to Arizona, just like the Dodgers. Exactly. See, there we go. Now we got a theme going. Uh, but the the Pirates took over Sarasota, moved the FSL club to Bradenton. We now know them as the Bradenton Marauders. That 2017 was the last Sarasota team with a winning record. So something to kind of give us there. Um, one other fascinating thing to me was that the 2015 Cedar Rapids Colonels who were a Twins affiliate, have two players in this World Series, which is just very funny that a Class A team would have two players in a World Series at all, but them being part of a completely different MLB team than was the affiliate at the time. That's because Nick Anderson, who was signed out of Indy Ball, quickly became the, the Cedar Rapids Colonels' closer, uh, but also appearing for the Colonels in that Midwest League postseason in 2015 was John Curtis, another member of the Tampa Bay bullpen, uh, that's very funny to me. And uh, yeah, Charlie Morton. This might have been my favorite of the whole thing. Charlie Morton and Jake McGee. Jake McGee, who was then a Rays of 
prospect, now a Dodgers pitcher, and Charlie Morton, then a Braves pitcher, uh, both faced each other in the postseason in the past. Uh, so this is not the first time they're crossing paths in the postseason. Uh, this was in 2007 on September 7th of that year. McGee started for AA Montgomery. Charlie Morton started for AA Mississippi in the Southern League semifinals. Uh, Morton had the better start. He had only given a, gave up one earned run over seven innings pitch. McGee gave up two earned runs over five innings. Uh, but McGee's Biscuits won the Southern League Championship that year. So it's just really funny how the minor leagues, there's so many stories to tell. Obviously, we say that all the time on this podcast and on the site. Uh, but just the, the little details, the little things that stick out in these postseasons that I think the usual fan might shrug and be like, okay, this is just for the players. This is great for them. It doesn't really matter much. It could circle back around there. You never know what you're going to get in a minor league postseason game. Can't wait for we, us to get more of those back again in 2021. And who knows if we're talking, you know, 2028, 2029 World Series and all the crazy matchups and random things that happened uh, in the 2021 minor league postseason. So that'll do it for this week's episode of the show before the show. Big thanks to uh, to Ben and to Joe for joining us. You can find their stories at MILB.com as well as uh, all of Sam's great work. And uh, for Sam Dykstra, I'm Tyler Mom. We'll talk to you next week. Hey, Rob Bradford here. You guys know I'm always up for a good MVP story. And one of the best stories is Wasabi Technology. Wasabi is the world's hottest cloud storage company, and it's become the go-to provider for professional and collegiate sports teams, including 20 major league baseball teams like the Red Sox and NHL teams like the Bruins and Vancouver Canucks. Even the Liverpool Football Club is getting in on the Wasabi action. So why is Wasabi the MVP? Well, Wasabi was purpose-built to free businesses from skyrocketing storage costs and unpredictable transaction fees that the Amazons of the world are charging. In fact, Wasabi is up to 80% less than those hyperscalers and doesn't charge a cent for businesses to access their data from Wasabi's AI-enabled intelligent media storage, Wasabi Air, to the industry's only cloud storage service with triple protection against cyber criminals, data deletion, and ransomware. Wasabi's taking the lead in driving innovation in data storage and helping sports teams to unleash the power of their data. Wasabi, another Boston-based championship team.